Amen. Would you join me? Romans chapter 8 this morning. Romans chapter 8. As you're turning there, I'm going to start with uh, an opening statement in a moment. And hopefully that gets your mind engaged. Before I do that, uh, two other quick thoughts. One is, I don't know, do you know the difference between teaching and preaching? Uh, maybe, hopefully you do. Uh, stand there, literally it dawned on me a while ago. I feel like I have struggled this week uh, to make today's sermon message uh, into more of a preaching time than what I think it's going to be. And I just feel like, man, I've really struggled. Of course, preaching has teaching, but it takes the teaching to a verdict. Uh, So today is going to be much more teaching in its content. Uh, Doesn't mean that there is no verdict, there's no action step, but it's kind of implied in the teaching. I don't know that I'll have a come forward type invitation. It may be the shortest one since I've been here, to be honest with you. Uh, and then it dawned on me, so I just wanted to double check. I pulled up my Bible, unless I'm missing it, in verses 1 through 9, which today we're going to focus on verses 5 through 9 of Romans 8. I don't think there's a command anywhere in it. It's just this information, these truths. So I hope you'll let the truths affect you, and you will just let the Holy Spirit internally cause you to adjust your life according to to the truths you're going to hear. You say, my thinking's not lined up with that. Well, then that's your action step today, is let the Word of God be true. And you say, well, I kind of think this over here, well, the Word of God's true and our natural thoughts are not. We need to yield to it. Second, kind of a disclaimer before I jump into my first thought, and that's this. Let's really get this. I am not going to be the final judge. That's a good thing. I'm not saying that in a threatening way. I'm just saying I don't, I don't have anything to go by other than people's externals. And I don't know everyone, so I wouldn't make a good final judge. God will be the final judge. You say, why are you saying that? Because here comes a statement. You ready? Have you ever talked? It's a question, I guess. I could say it as a statement because I have. Have you ever talked with someone who said something like this? Oh, I know of a Christian who lived in blatant sin. You know what I mean? Known, blatant, the Bible could not be clearer. I've known of a Christian who lived in blatant sin with no desire for God for 20, 25 years. You ever heard that? I know of a Christian, man, they wallowed in sin, really didn't have a heart for God 20, 25 years. What do you think about that? What do you think about that? I think this may be an area we need to have an adjustment because we use this terminology a lot of times in, in our Christianity, in our churches that may not be biblical. I'm going to tell you why someone may say that. We'll read the whole text in a moment, but would you look at verse number 4? I think it's on the screen by itself. Here's where that mentality comes from. Look at Romans 8 verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, watch this, us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. The problem that a lot of folks have and where they reach these conclusions, oh yeah, Christian wallowing in sin, blatant known sin, no desire for God, 20, 25 years, is they have a mentality that there's two kinds of Christians. There's those Christians who walk in the Spirit, walk with the Spirit, and then there's those Christians who walk in the flesh and walk according to the flesh. Here's the only problem with that. It's not biblical. God doesn't talk like that. Really, He doesn't. You say, no, get out of here. 
There are the Christians who walk in the Spirit, and there's the Christians that walk in the flesh. That's not how God looks at it. God, God sees two types of people in this auditorium, and I imagine both are here this morning. He's not looking at your skin tone. He's not, word, he's, he's not putting you in two groups of categories based on party affiliation or income or nationality. That, that's not it. It's two groups, very clear, distinct groups. Believers in Jesus, unbelievers. That's the two groups. Believers, unbelievers. That's what God sees. You say, no, no, no. Verse 4, that's talking about the the believers. They kind of have two categories. No, they don't. John MacArthur, the end of this quote is going to be your first note, but I want to set it up with a fuller quote. Listen to what he offers, because I do agree with it, and I think it correlates exactly with Romans 8 here. Listen carefully. Evaluate this. He says, obviously there are degrees in both categories. Talking about saved, unsaved. Obviously there are degrees in both categories. Some unsaved people exhibit high moral behavior. And on the other hand, many saints do not mind the things of God as obediently as they should. Two categories. Ranges within those. But if you want to write this down, this is true. But every human being is completely, that's a key word, every human being is completely in one spiritual state of being or the other. He either belongs to God or he does not. There's no like straddling the fence, well, I kind of belong to the Lord, uh, but really I, I live all my life in the flesh. What I want to tell you this morning, and again, this is going to sound like splitting hairs, and maybe it'll make sense the further we go along. We've already been in Romans 6 and 7. uh, But I'll say this. No Christian lives in the flesh. Now, you want to make it a little more confusing. The flesh is still in us as Christians. We saw that in chapter 7. But no Christian lives in the flesh. All Christians live in the Spirit. It's a whole new realm. They don't have that other address. At times we may act like we have that other address and a remnant of that, the flesh may still be in us, but we don't live in the flesh because we live in the Spirit. Verse 9 could not be more clear. Paul says, you see, I'm nah, just not with you, preacher. Verse 9, you, however, after talking about these that walk in the flesh and these that walk according to the Spirit, verse 9, Paul tells the believers in Rome, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, and if you read that and say, that's just it, preacher. I think I'm one of those Christians that don't have the Spirit yet. And I'm waiting on that. I got a buddy. They had it come to them later, and I'm waiting on that to happen to me. Look at the end of verse number 9. That's where we'll finish today. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So Paul says, hey, they, there's those, and they, and then there's us and you. There's you believers in Rome, and then there's... The unsaved. You were there, but you've been moved over here. So what I want to do, I want to back up and read our text. And today we'll only have two points, but the first one, I'll go ahead and warn you, has four subpoints under it. Um, and then we'll briefly look at the second point. main part of the message uh, will be spent in verses 5 through 8. But I want to back up to verse 1. That's where we were last week. Look at verse 1. There is therefore, the therefore there kind of concludes chapters 1 through 7. Because we're so sinful that we could never save ourselves, God has to give us salvation for free. Because He gives it for free, and all we do is receive it by faith, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. When you get saved, you get put in what's called in Christ. That's your new address. 
And so last week we said there's a new verdict. No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, we said, how, how can there be a new verdict? Because there's a new law judging us. Paul says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Watch. There's a law of sin. The soul that sins, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. James says, if you offend in one point of the law, I've never done that, I've never killed anyone, never committed adultery, and I've never stolen anything. Praise the Lord. You've lied and you've coveted. And if you offend in one point, you've broken the whole thing. That's the law. That's the law of sin and death goes with it. But we said here's this dynamic. Newer, more Previous, I'm sorry, newer law outranks previous law. So the same Holy Spirit who authored the, the Old Testament and the law of sin and death comes along and makes a newer law that even outranks and overpowers that law and says, if you'll put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then there is no condemnation. You're born in condemnation, but if you'll believe in Jesus, you're moved out of condemnation into life. So that's how he can have this new verdict. Verse 2 again, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Well, I guess God just is unjust. He's just up there making up the rules as he wants. And he's just flying by the seat of his pants. He just changed the rules midstream for some people. No, watch verse 3 and 4. God did something to allow himself to do this. For God has done. God has done. What the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God has done what the law could not do. We said, what can the law not do? Two things. The law can't save us. Oh, look, there's the Ten Commandments. I'll keep those and go to heaven by keeping No, you can't do it. The law cannot save you. You are too weak. Our, our sinful flesh resists and rebels against the law. So what does God do? He says, I can not only save you, but I can also make you holy. And the law can do neither one of those. What does God do? Verse 3 in the middle. He did this by sending his own son in the likeness, looked just like other human beings. He was in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he was not sinful flesh. And the Bible says he sent him for sin as a sin offering. And in doing that, God condemned sin in the flesh. God condemned sin in the flesh. The opening song this morning had to do with death being condemned, death being arrested. Now verse 4. Again, I want to emphasize this briefly. If you weren't here last week, it's this way. Here's what we hear. Yes, I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. That's the best part of the gospel. That's not the only part. I'm going to tell you it's not the main part of the gospel. Yeah, God took pity on my hell-bound soul and I'm not going to hell now. That's a great thing, but that's not the main thing. You say, what could be greater than that? Verse 4, he did that. He he sent his son to save us, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. God does care about holiness. Us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those, here's our text, verse 5 through 9. For those who live according to the flesh, those, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, Set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. 
For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. First point today, would you note this? Contrast between Christians or believers and unbelievers. Contrast between saved and unsaved. Um, not using all his material, I just kind of thought, wow, Warren Wearsby made it real simple. He's very practical. He, what he's saying is there's four sets of contrasts in verses 5 through 8. And so we're, we're going to kind of just teach this today and let the Holy Spirit apply as he would in your heart this morning. These are facts. Here come the four contrasts, four differences. You said, Jeff, so believers, unbelievers, God's not evaluating us by skin and monetary uh, income and, and, and our political party. No, that's, that's, that's not this. God has two groups of people, believers, unbelievers. I'm going to tell you, they couldn't be more different. Contrast number one comes in verse 5. In the flesh is contrasted within the spirit. In the flesh is contrasted within the spirit. So here's where I need to take a moment. I didn't do this last week. I intended on doing it. I think I skipped it. What's this idea of flesh? Look at verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. What's this flesh? He said, well, flesh is skin. Paul does use the word flesh as skin. He talks about uh, being circumcised in the foreskin of the flesh. So sometimes he does use the word as literally your flesh, your, your meat, your skin. That's not what he's talking about here. Other times, Paul uses it, uh, William Barclay offers these, these ideas to us. He says, he uses this with the idea of uh, from the human standpoint or from the human point of view. Watch this. Abraham, the Bible says, and even Paul says Abraham is the forefather or the father of the Jews according to the flesh. So there's nothing sinful there. Flesh isn't automatically sinful. Nothing sinful about the body by itself. And Abraham is the father of the Jews according to the flesh. But then Paul uses the word flesh in a whole other way. What does he mean? Barclay offers the following. He says it's not the idea of just skin. It's human nature in all of its weakness. Our human nature, what we, what we just inherited from Adam is full of weakness. It's this. The flesh, what Paul means here. Is human nature's vulnerability to sin. We are very vulnerable. We're vulnerable to sin and to temptation. And if that wasn't clear enough, you say, what does Paul mean when he says the flesh? Here it is. That part of us, can I say it this way? That part of you that gives sin a chance. Isn't there a part of you that always gives sin a chance? Here comes sin. Do I have a chance? Yeah, unfortunately, you got a chance. Because I'm a safe person in the spirit, I'm not in the flesh, I'm not in the flesh, but there's still remnants of the flesh that is in me in this life. One day I'll be rid of this, and we'll talk about that, Lord willing, next week. Look at verse 5. So it's this part of us vulnerable to sin and to temptation, this part of us that gives sin a chance. Verse 5, Paul says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. They set their mind. Uh, I grew up in western North Carolina. Uh, you get, I, this may totally bomb, you may not get it, and you probably have not heard this. But it wasn't, I, I think it was not just my family. They had a little saying that my mom would say. It went something like this. You better mind me. And it was usually followed with two words. Right now. 
You better mind me right now. Have, you, have, have y'all heard that? I don't know if that, okay, y'all, okay, good. Some of you have heard that. Some of you say that. You better mind, boys, you better mind me right now or daddy's coming home. That was always a bad thing. Daddy's going to get us. Pretend you're not from a country that speaks English and you're finally learning English and you hear that phrase, mind me. What does that mean? Mind you. What are you doing? I said mind me. That's what I'm, I'm minding you. What are you doing? What does that even mean? Mind me. I think mind me. I think what she was saying was you had better acknowledge me and set your dial of your mind to yield and obey what I'm telling you to do. I'm your mother. You better mind me right now. Acknowledge, yield, surrender, and obey. Mind. Can I, can, I want to get this point across. The set your mind. Setting of the mind. One author uh, was born in the, apparently the middle part of our country. And so he had never seen a sailboat. And he talks about, I think he was on the Pacific Coast Highway. I've never been there. But he comes over and he looks out. And it's not a small harbor, obviously. He didn't see a sailboat. He saw 75, estimated 75 different sailboats. And he knew that the wind was going one constant direction. I've never been on a sailboat. I don't know how they work. And he didn't either. He said it was really amazing to him. 75 different sailboats. And they're going all different directions. How is that possible? One wind direction, some that way and that way and that way, and some are coming, and it's like, how is that even possible? And he finally had someone tell him, well, the rudder does help, but more than anything, it's how you have your sail set that determines the direction you will go. Let that sink in. You will go in the direction your sail is set. Some of you have been sailing or you know how to sail. You say, that's absolutely right. Same wind, and I've heard it called tacking. You can, you can tack back and forth, or you can just let the wind carry if it's going the direction you want to go. But it's how you have your sail set. What I have found is my body almost always follows my mind. Now, sometimes... The body breaks down. It doesn't follow the mind. But usually where my mind wants to do and wants to think about and wants to accomplish, my body follows the mind. So where is my mind set? Look at verse 5 again. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds. So we're talking about the unsaved person sets their minds on the things of the flesh. What does that mean? Catch it. This means to have as a mindset. Put the two words together, okay? Okay, oh, that helps me. Set the mind. Almost think of it as a dial. You have a mindset. I'm setting my mind on that degree, that register, that setting. So it means to have as a mindset, to have aspirations for. It means to have as a bent. The mind is set. They set their mind. They bend it. They aspire for something. Here, here's a word. It is oriented toward. They have, a, they have a, just an, an orientation toward something. Just as sure as a plant is oriented, aspires, is bent, and grows toward sunlight, here's what I've learned. The sinful, lost person is bent toward sin. Always bent toward sin, aspiring, oriented. They just, they just gravitate directly toward sin. You say, well, Jeff, that sounds like me sometimes. But just as sure as that, if you look in the middle of verse 5, right in the middle, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But, 
So you say, I know that's sure. That's true. Watch this. As true as that is, but those who live according to the Spirit, and verse 9 says that save people, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So this should ring true. Here's what I have found. A Christian has a bent and a concern for godly spiritual things. If you're here today and you say, I'm a Christian, I have no desire for spiritual godly things. I'm only here to check something off my list or to appease someone. Then you're not a Christian. Either that or I've misinterpreted verse 5. Because verse 5 says, but those who live according to the Spirit set, they have an orientation, bent, they aspire toward things of the Spirit. This does not just mean, oh yeah, when spiritual things come their way, they can kind of make sense of it. It means more than that, guys. It does mean that, but it means they actually go after spiritual things. I hope that's why you came here today. There are many of you, you're like, the reason I'm here today is I have, I have a spiritual appetite. I want to be fed. I thought of the different types of creation that I know about. There's God, who is not a created thing. He's the creator. There's angels, humans, fish, birds, insects, animals. Did you catch that? I might be wrong, but if I, what I've gathered is we. This is strange. Listen, this is you. You are unique in all of creation, along with all of the other human beings, because unlike anything else I just said, it seems to me that we are simultaneously existing in two very real realms. We are in the physical realm, and we are in the spiritual realm. I don't know what it is, but in the Bible, the fallen angels, for some reason, want a body. They would love to have your body. And they'd even settle for an animal's body. I don't get that because they're stronger than us. They're smarter, more powerful. I mean, they have so many advantages, but for some reason, they want what we have. Sitting there right now, guys, you are in the physical world and you're in the spiritual world, but you know what we do? We give 99, if we're not careful, 99% of our time and attention to the physical and very little bit, very little to the spiritual. Let me illustrate. It's hot. It's cold. I'm hungry. I'm sleepy. I need some Advil. Right? All these are normal things, and we're very aware of those things. We're really in tune. Today, there's a demon or an angel that is stationed in Nepal near Mount Everest. I might be wrong, but I don't think they're going, oh man, this place is cold. It's not to them. Or the one who's near the equator, man, why'd I get this job? I'm always, they always send me to the equator. It's hot. We're aware of those things, but they're not. Be careful about putting all of your time and your attention and your focus in that which is physical. Because the unsaved person sets their mind orientation and their bent toward the flesh. That not just bodily part, but that sinful part of us that gives sin and temptation a chance. Don't answer out loud, but if I were to ask you in the history of mankind, what's been mankind's most popular false god that we've served? What's been the most popular, more than any other, that all of mankind has served this idol more than any others? Himself. More than any other false god, mankind's most popular idol has always been himself. It's always been his own fleshly desires. Picture, here's a starving man. Here's a sinful man, and over here is a Christian. A starving man, his mind, literally, if he hasn't eaten, his mind aspires, he is oriented. He is going to do whatever it takes to get fed. Here's a sinful man. His mind is bent, geared, oriented 
towards sin. He's going to do whatever it takes to meet and satisfy, he thinks, those needs. I'm going to tell you over here, this man that walks with God, who has the Holy Spirit in him, he also has an aspiration orientation, a bent toward spiritual things. Yes, those draw. And I'm aware when it's hot and cold and I'm sleepy and hungry. I'm aware of that. But I want to be fed. I need spiritual food. I need a relationship with God. They're drawn to these things. Say, Jeff, I feel this battle. I like Romans 7 really connected with me, the end of that. What caused this new war? I want you to picture a company, and they've been going this direction, down. Not being good. And sure enough, the board fires the CEO, and they bring in a brand new CEO, and the new CEO meets with all. They says, I, I need to meet with everybody. And he comes in, and he has a whole new way of doing business. And it changes the way everything is run. I'm going to meet with you guys. We're overhauling that. We're getting a new mindset here. The way we're doing sales, we're going to overhaul that whole new way. And before long, business is running great because we have a whole new mindset. What I want to tell you, what happens in a believer is the dynamic of the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life. And all of a sudden, they have aspirations and orientations and desires that were not there before that are real and powerful. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And so they're living in the same, hey, right here this morning. They're saved and there's unsaved in this building. Right here, right now, looking at me. And as you hear this morning, we all experience the exact same things. Same wind direction like those sailboats. But here's the difference. One person, an unsaved person, sees a nice, pleasant coincidence. But the believer walking in the Spirit recognizes that's a specific answer to a prayer I've been praying. Same type of thing. One hears a nice sermon. Oh, that's a thought-provoking passage. Or, well, over there in the Psalms, that's poetic. That's nice. But a believer hears the voice of God, not just from a man, but from the text, the voice of God. These are words to live by. Same people, same auditorium. Oh, that's nice. Another person like, I've got to line my life up with that. Total different response. Why? One has their sail set, their mindset on spiritual things. The other one's just locked into the fleshly things. One recognizes tension. I just feel fatigued, opposition. The spiritual person recognizes there's spiritual warfare going on. One comes into the house of God and it's like, man, there's just a nice feeling. There's a good feeling. I don't know what it is. It's kind of just a warmness when I go there with with those church people. And the other person, the believer, walks in and they can already tell, oh, I know what that is. The Holy Spirit's here today. The Holy Spirit's meeting with us. The Holy Spirit's at work. Here's a big one. Unsaved person whose mind is set on things of the flesh sees the blessings of God as a means to accomplish their plans. This is great. Look, I have all this stuff. I can do these things. A believer who's walking with the Spirit, they take the exact same blessings of God, but their attitude is totally different. God has given me this. Why? God, what do you want? You want this plan. It's all yours. We heard a testimony to that Wednesday night. So number one, in the spirit is contrasted within the flesh. Number two comes out of verse six. Death contrasts with life. Like two out of the four songs, maybe even three out of the four songs this morning had to do with coming from spiritual death to life. Look at verse number six. For to set the mind on the flesh, you set, you dial it in, you have that mindset, orientation bent, you set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. 
I'm going to try to touch this one quickly if I can. Just note this, an unsaved person, if you're here this morning, you may know that you're unsaved or you may think you're saved, but you're not. Here's the thing. You have a dead spirit. You have a body that's here. It's awake. It's aware. It's alive. You have a soul that's awake and aware. You have a spirit that is born dead. Your spirit is dead. All of us are born with a dead spirit. That's what verse 6 is talking about. Unsaved person has a dead spirit. He's dead to the prompting and the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. All he knows, all he knows is the fleshly mindset. Would you guys listen to me this morning? This is not a preaching point, but I hope it's a teaching point that the Holy Spirit applies to you. There is no future in the fleshly mindset. There's no future in the fleshly. The mind that is set on the things of the flesh has no future to it. It is futile. It's empty. You ever seen this? By the way, as I say it, some of you are going to go, oh, wow, that's me. You ever seen the guy on Monday morning who arrives Monday morning and all he's thinking about is Friday? You ever seen that? Oh, Friday. Always living for a day off. Here's the other one. Usually they break it down like this. Get there at 7 8, 8 30, and what are they thinking? Now, when is lunch? Why? Because they're constantly thinking about mundane things like food and Friday and hobbies and sports. And you're going to say, oh, here he goes. Preacher preaching on hobbies and sports. And now he's attacking food. He's against food. No, I promise. I'm not against any of it. Friday's great, and I look forward to Friday as well. But I want us to balance it. If you invest everything in you in the mundane, physical things of life, you're going to come up empty. Some go further than that, though. You ever seen this? By the way, it's maybe somebody here in the room right now. Maybe a guy. Literally, I've seen this so often. Their whole mindset is set on lust. Wide open. Wide open. Here's what I mean. Every woman, every woman of a, of a certain age is literally looked at and evaluated sexually. Everyone. And when they get on the job site, it doesn't take them long to figure out who are the other guys like them because all talk, all talk flows right back to that. Why? Their mind is set on the things of the flesh. It's locked on that. Others, that's not their issue. They are locked on possessions. I need more possession. I need more fame. I want more people to know me and more people to like me. Others, it's I need more power. Listen, it's death, death, death. It's empty. There's nothing to it. It doesn't satisfy The evidence for what I just said is all around us. I mean, in simple, simple things. You ever done this? You want to build a deck at the house. Man, it's time. Need to build a new deck. So you get your materials, got your plan, got your buddies coming to help you. You're going to build a new deck, and when it's all done, you're going to hit it Friday afternoon as soon as work's over, maybe even get off a couple hours early, get as much done as you can, got the lights out. Look, we got everything good. Concrete needs to set because tomorrow morning we're hitting it early. This is going to be great, and we're going to finish the deck, and then we're going to culminate it in the big finale. We're going to have the cookout. Ladies got it going on inside. They're making the run to the store. We're going to have the big cookout, and I got the, the, the big screen out on the deck under the, the little covering over there, and we're going to watch the ball game, and it's going to be great, and you finish the deck, and then it rains. Your big finale just, ah, sorry guys. Grab a burger as you head home. Or here's one. 
Everything goes perfect. You build the deck and it's sunny. And you're going to be able to watch the game. Here's the only problem. Brand new deck. And you load the old patio furniture back on the new deck. And all of a sudden, you cannot appreciate the new deck because look at that ratty old patio furniture. We can't have ratty old patio furniture on, on the new deck. And so now you have two choices. Either be very disappointed, can't even notice the new deck, all you can do is see the old furniture. Or go into more debt, right? Swipe more, honey, go get new stuff. Out with this. This will never do. Didn't plan on that. None of you have ever had this happen. This is the evidence that investing only in the, in the physical is empty. It's a dead-end road. It doesn't satisfy. You ever had this happen? You work and work and work for months and months, and you finally reach that magical number on the scale. Yes! Yes! Seven months ago, it took a little longer than I thought, but there's the magic number. Here's the problem. You go in the mirror and you're like, why don't I look like the people on TV? And what are these marks all over my body that weren't there seven months ago? And you take a six-week break. What took you seven months in six weeks is totally undone. Just like that. You ever done this? Make a reservation and you wait six months. You're going to the beach. It's going to be great. Or you're a mountain person. It's going to be awesome. Six months, three months, only two more months. Honey, one more month. And you get one more week. This is great. And you finally go. You ever done this? And Thursday is already here. It was good, but it's Thursday night, and you're thinking there's only one more full day. And you don't even really enjoy Friday because it is the last day, and you can't think, but tomorrow morning I've got to pack up and drive back. And we've been looking forward to this for six months, and it's gone. What's up with that? On a sinful level, this happens more than we'd like to know. Listen. Some guys fantasize about a sexual conquest. It's all they think about. Specific girl. Do everything in their power to woo her, whatever it takes. Say the right things, buy some things. And then they finally accomplish the sexual conquest, and really it's nothing like what they thought. She thinks it's going to make everything great, take it to the next level. Oh, it takes it to another level. He dumps her and treats her cruelly. For six months, she was the greatest thing. Then one night, and then after that, nothing to do with it. Why? It didn't satisfy Didn't do for her what she thought was going to happen. Didn't do for him what he thought was going to happen. Why? Because verse number 6. To set the mind on the flesh is death. It's going nowhere. I'll get just real practical with you. I'm preaching to Jeff right here. Some people's joy. I mean, some people, you ever met this person? Their whole identity is riding on whether a 19-year-old can shoot a ball or throw a ball. Or catch a ball. Or run with a ball. I mean your whole joy. Your identity. That kid. He's 19. He did his best. So if you listen to this you're saying man. One this is depressing. Two this preacher's against everything that's fun. Please understand. I'm not preaching against a new deck. Have a new deck. I'm not preaching against... Cheering for the team. Cheer for the team. And I mean, go all in. If you're going to cheer for the team, cheer for the team. Really. But just know this. Only one team wins the championship. Right? And so you had, and by the way, have you ever noticed this? January whatever it is, 
They win the championship, and before the broadcast is over, they're talking about next year's top 25. Hey, that's great. What about next year? Next year, we've got to work. Yeah, this is nothing. Next year, you're going to be a real program? Nothing satisfies. But a Christian's not like that because a Christian realizes, please, please get this. I'm not saying those are bad and sinful. They're wonderful things God gives to us. Go on a fun vacation. Build the new patio. Cheer for the team. But at the end of the day, no, those are not the main things. Life, like verse 6, life is with God. Death is apart from God, everything separate from God. Life is doing all those wonderful things with God, bringing God into the golf, bringing God into the vacation, bringing God into the team and the, and the house project and all these wonderful things. Number three. Comes from verse number six and seven. Write this down. War with God contrasts with peace with God. War with God contrasts with peace with God. Verse six again. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So be careful where you set your mind. What is your mind set on? Is it a good investment? Verse number seven. For the mind that is set on the flesh, this is the unsaved person, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot submit the idea. Cannot. If you want to write this down, an unsaved person may claim to love God. And in their heart, they think, I love God. No, you don't. No, surely I do. I, have, I believe in God and I have warm feelings toward God. If you're an unbeliever, you can't. An unsaved person claims to love God, but catch this, his condition as God's enemy makes that impossible. It is impossible. Why? His whole life is in constant rebellion against God. i got to say that again. The unbeliever's whole life is in constant rebellion against God. You say, how is that possible? They're doing all these wonderful things. Here's the issue. His mind has rejected what God says is the most important thing. God says the most important thing is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Unbeliever says, I believe in you and I like you. I just think you're wrong about Jesus. I can get to heaven. You're going to let me in heaven without Jesus. And so they reject the Son of God and somehow think they're going on good terms with God. Wrong. They're hostile to God. They don't want God telling them how to live. I, this is many people. I would almost believe in Jesus, but I know that that would have all these demands on my life, and I'm not going to do that, and so I'm just going to go through life, be a good person, believe in God, do some religious things. In the meantime, they've rejected what God says is most important. The person I'm describing here makes peace with sin, and by making peace with sin, he opposes God despises God telling him what to do. You say, what's the difference between that person and a believer? Catch this. A believer, the moment they put their faith in Jesus, they are no longer the enemy of God. They're not hostile to God. They're brought into a peaceful relationship with God. Don't have time to break these two prepositions down. They immediately have a standing with God where I was your enemy. Now you are my friend. You are my God. I worship you. But now I'm no longer your enemy. I'm your child. I truly do love you. And they're brought into peace with God. And as they walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and the leading of the Holy Spirit, they now have peace from God. If I could wrap this thought up, I would say this. An unbeliever wages war with God while making peace with their sin, while a believer has peace with God 
which immediately starts a war against sin that wasn't there before. Verse number 8. Pleasing self contrasts with pleasing God. Verse number 8 words it very clearly. Couldn't be more clear. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I'm going to go back to verse number 4. You say, what's the difference between a believer and unbeliever? Verse 8 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But it's different for a saved person. In order, verse 4, in order that the right... Why did he save us? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. How? Who walk not according to the flesh, that's our old life, but according to the Spirit. What this implies is a Christian is able to please God. How? Because God's Holy Spirit, this is key, it's simple, I know you've heard it before, but get it. God's Holy Spirit comes in my life and He enables me to do what I never could before. He enables me to do it. Now the righteous requirement of the law, the law is not my new focus, but as my focus is on walking with the Holy Spirit, like are you doing it right now, right now, if you're a believer, you talk with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, am I in tune with you? Am I thinking about the things you want me to think about? Is my heart where you want it to be right now or are we good? I want to be good. I'm surrendering you right now. Lord, lead my thoughts. Right now, you should be having that conversation as a Christian. And as you're doing that, all of a sudden, you are fulfilling the law. Though the law is not your focus, he is leading you and he's causing you to have the power to fulfill the law. Write this down. I hope I'm accurate in this. I think I am. What happens? The Spirit of God changes our mindset from what it used to be So that, let's be honest, we still do what we want to do. But now what we want to do pleases God. I'll say that again. What happens in a Christian that they're able to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law? Is it us? We're pulling ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps and just doing better? No. The Holy Spirit comes inside, changes our mindset from what it used to be So that we still do what we want to do, but now, because he's changed our mindset, what we want to do pleases God because he's changed what we want to do. You find this evidence, and you ought to mark this in your Bible. Philippians chapter 2, verse number 13. Look at it on the screen. Look at this verse. For it, he tells the Philippians, Paul says to the Philippians, it is God who works in you, both to will. Hey, Christian, the Holy Spirit comes in you. He changes your will. Your will is not what it used to be. You will to please God. So he says, Paul's saying, let's just give credit where it belongs. Romans 4, 8, 4, he says it's, uh, verse 3, he says, God has done. So here he says, it is God who works in you both to will. He changes your will, your desire, and to work. He actually pulls it off. He accomplishes the work for his good pleasure. Back to verse 8, though. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I'm going to agree with the Scripture. Unsaved person. Maybe you're here this morning and you know you're unsaved. Can I tell you something nicely? This is not me. This is the Word of God. You cannot please God. It's impossible. You cannot please God. You say, but I, I say prayers. I'm here at church. I'm going to give toward the project. Let me tell you something. Doing those things are good, but they don't please God. Why? Because an unsaved person does not do what they do for the glory of God. I've learned this. Two things please God. God is pleased with faith. 
So a believer, a believer hears this, has faith in God and responds to what God does. And that God is pleased. He's always pleased with faith. But the second thing I know God is pleased with is that which is done for his glory. An unbeliever has this mindset. I'm going to say prayers and I'm going to go to church and I'm going to make donations and I'm going to give my time and I'm going to do all these wonderful things. But you're doing it so that you will either earn favor with God or so that people will like you or that you'll feel good about yourself. You're the God in this. You're doing it to please yourself. You're not doing it to please God. But with a believer, it's the Holy Spirit inside them fueling that so that he gets all the credit. A believer doesn't say, I'm going to give to that and so everyone notices me. God, you bless me with that. I'm going to give to that. God, I go to church not to earn points because I want to be fed and I want to meet with your people. God, I'm going to say these prayers. I'm going to pray these prayers, not say prayers. I'm going to pray these prayers because I want to have a relationship with you. It's not like spiritual points in your book. Verse number nine. Our second thought, and this will be brief, is not only the contrast between believers and unbelievers, but number two, the sure sign of a Christian. Here's the sure sign of a Christian. And if there is an action step, I think it comes out of this and it's implied. Paul says in verse nine, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, So say it again. You are not in the flesh. So those things that were were said, the negatives that were said in verses 5 through 8, that's not a Christian. You're in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, go back to what I said when I started the message. But what if I'm one of those Christians who don't have the Spirit of God? Anyone, the Bible says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. I'm I'm not going to take the time that I could here. Verse 9 is a major, major theological landmark in Scripture. Why? This is a major, I mean, we need to acknowledge this. This is a change. Paul wrote Romans, we estimate somewhere around A.D. 56. I, I gave that information in January when we started the Roman study, and I told you it would come into play a few times. This is one of those times. So A.D. 56, Paul writes the book of Romans. Before that, what had already happened is the majority of the history in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a historical book. It's a book about church history. Really, if you think about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and what they contain in there, the ministry of John the Baptist. We could almost say John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet and the first New Testament prophet. Okay? So what you have in the book of Acts, which its writing starts somewhere around 30 AD as Jesus is resurrected and he's meeting with his small group of followers and then he's going to be ascended back to God in the first chapter and then it's going to run all the way to like AD 62. So it's going to cover about 32, 33 years. What you have is church history. Say, Jeff, why are you hammering this home? Because the book of Acts is transitional. What you find in the book of Acts is, get this, people who are believers in Jesus Christ, some at that point in history, because it's transitional between Old Testament making its way, the transition into New Testament saints, Old Testament believers, New Testament Christians, in that phase you'll have people who have actually put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ but do not have the Holy Spirit. He said, get out of here. That's impossible, right? No, no, no. Somebody had to start. There's 120 people. Just a few less than what we have in here. 120 people were in an upper room. They're already believing in Jesus, but Pentecost hadn't happened yet. 
And on the day at the Feast of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down and filled all of them. But just moments before, they were already believers in Christ, didn't have the Spirit. Watch this. So the church in Jerusalem is Jewish. And it stays kind of huddled up there. And eventually persecution starts driving the church out. And and a deacon who also has the gift of evangelism named Philip. Philip heads north into Samaria. And he starts preaching the gospel about Jesus to the half-Jews, half-Gentiles, the Samaritans. Everybody hates the Samaritans. You're wasting your time. Philip goes and preaches the gospel to them. Watch. They believe in Jesus. And I'm telling you, at that moment, they're on their way to heaven. But they don't have the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 8. Study it. Philip's preached. He's an evangelist. He's one of the seven deacons of the Jerusalem church. But it's not until Peter and John, apostles who outrank the others, Peter and John make their way to Samaria, lay their hands on them, then they receive the Spirit. Even as late as as Acts chapter 19, you have followers of John the Baptist who still hadn't even known. We didn't know the Holy Spirit's come. Paul asked them, do you have the Holy Spirit? And they're like, we didn't know the Holy Spirit's come. Well, what were you baptized into? John's belief. John's doctrine. Well, you need to get baptized into Jesus. You need to get up to date. And then they receive the Spirit. Here's my point. You get messed up when you build your doctrine and your theological system and your doctrine about the Holy Spirit based only on the book of Acts because it's transitional. Here's what I know. That believers in Jesus without the Spirit was possible in AD 28, AD 30, apparently even as late as AD 38 and 40 in the early 40s. But I know this, by AD 56, all that's changed and the transition has run its course. And Paul says in verse number 9 at the end, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And so we reach this conclusion. Romans chapter 8 verse number 9 becomes a new benchmark for what constitutes a true believer, a true Christian. If I could say it plainer, my last note for you this morning, and this is where I want you to feel this. This is defendable in Scripture. This is important. The Holy Spirit in a person is the identifying mark to determine who is or is not a believer. Sometimes I'll have you guys raise your hand. Heads bowed. We're not doing it right now. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Do you know that you know that you know that you're a Christian? And many will raise their hand. And every now and then, some not sure. Sometimes people raise their hand. I know I'm not. Can I tell you something? Raising your hand when I say, do you know that you're a Christian? Raising your hand is not the guarantee. You unsafe person can raise their hand. The guaranteed, full proof. You say, Jeff, how can I know I'm going to heaven when I die? Do you have the sign of the Holy Spirit? You say, preacher, you can't see that. It's not visible. I'll give you that. But the evidence of the Holy Spirit in a person's life is visible. So what is it? Look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. Very familiar. Would you look at this list? Simple. Look at the list. Look at, verse, look at Galatians. This is, this is the most important thing of the, of the message today. Ask yourself and be honest. Two things. Do you have a Bible reason why you think you're going to heaven? You say, yes, I've put my faith and trust in Jesus. I'm believing in Jesus. How can you know that you've put your faith in Jesus and you've not watered it down or muddied it up with putting your faith in baptism or good works or church membership or offerings? How do you know you're not clouding it? Are these things being accomplished in your life? Because when the Holy Spirit's in a person, they have. The Holy Spirit's fruit, the evidence is 
Do you? I'm asking you, do you have love, joy, peace, patience, patient endurance, no matter what life throws at you, you're not a quitter, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You say, are all these things perfect 100% every day? No, they're not perfect 100% every day. Against such things there is no law. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, will be right below that. Look at this. Paul had some, some accusers. Paul, you're not a real apostle. You know what Paul tells them? I'm asking you to do this today. Here's the action step. Examine yourselves. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Ladies and gentlemen, if I were to come and interview you, could you honestly say, I'm not bragging, but by the grace of God, I got saved X amount of weeks, days, months, years, decades ago, and by God's grace, I am seeing His love. I love God. I love Jesus. I love the Holy Spirit. I love the Bible. I love souls. I love my family. If you say, oh, I have no love. Love's like my weakest thing. Then you need to check yourself. You are probably not a Christian because the first thing the Holy Spirit brings into a person is love. Do you have joy? I'm not talking about happiness. That's football, right? We won. I'm not talking about that. Do you have joy no matter what that's tied to that patience and peace? Are these things evidenced in your life? So as I conclude Romans 8, I want to be clear. Please listen. Paul is not implying that Christians always mind the things of the Spirit and that we never think about the things of the flesh. That's not what he's saying. Romans 7 verse 20, he admits it. He says, now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it. It's sin that dwells in me, within me. So sin is still in there, but he's not in the flesh. Paul's not saying we're perfect. I'll go further. Starting from the pulpit right on back, we as Christians have the exact same pull toward anger and lust and greed and pride and lying and coveting, the exact same pull that everybody else has. But here's the difference. A Christian cannot continuously wallow in those sins and be dominated by those things. Why? Because the Holy Spirit comes in, checks us, convicts us, gives us power. He does it. We don't do it. But God has done what the law could not do. He saved us. He makes us holy. It is a process. But it's a guaranteed process. Believers do not walk in the flesh. They live in the spirit, that realm. An unbeliever, you may try to do religious things, but you can never please God by that because the whole time you're saying, I don't believe in Jesus. Either I'm good enough without him or I don't believe what you say about him and thus you're calling God a liar. Where are you? Say, I'm a Christian. Do you have the evidence? Would you bow your head just for a moment? My simple conclusion, I wouldn't really call it an invitation this morning, just simple conclusion. Is everyone in here, without looking, don't look up, is everyone in here absolutely sure that you have the Holy Spirit in you? If you're a Christian, you don't need to think, one day I, I hope to get the Holy Spirit. That's not how it works. You receive the Spirit the moment you put your faith in Christ. Do you have these sure signs of the Holy Spirit? 
Everybody, please. I I don't want anyone here to finish this life and be surprised that you're in hell because you thought you believed in Jesus when you had never really done it. So, Jeff, how will I know? Do you have the evidence of the Holy Spirit? Heads bowed, eyes closed. I'm just curious. Again, this is not a come forward invitation. Is there anyone here this morning, say by a raised hand, Jeff, I'm just really not sure about this. I just don't know that my life is lining up. Jeff, just be straight with you. Those phrases, in the flesh, spiritual death, war with God and pleasing self, those describe my life. And the other four don't. In spirit, spiritual life, peace with God, pleasing God, those are just not part of my life. I, I think I'm in real trouble. I don't want to wake up in hell. Is there anyone like that this morning say, I, I need to talk to somebody? Would you raise your hand? Anyone? I see that one. Thank you. Anyone else? I'm asking you to evaluate yourself in light of the Scripture. You have the signs of the Holy Spirit. One more time. Anyone else? I saw one hand. Anyone say, I, I, I need to talk with someone. Father, I pray for us as a church this morning. Lord, I pray that as we've heard this truth, that we would submit to it, surrender to it. Lord, I thank you. Thank you, God, that you do what we can never do. Thank you that it's not relying upon me being good, being better. Thank you that you are so powerful and so strong that when you came into my life in 1979, I can look back, not because of me, but it's true. You've made a difference. Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the times that I rebel and I believe the lie and I overinvest in the physical world or even my bodily appetites. Lord, you think I would know better by now? Lord, I pray that those of us who are truly your people would be walking in harmony with you, not against you. And that we'd see the evidence so we have assurance that we're your children. Lord, I pray for this gentleman that has a question. Lord, I ask you to give clarity there. If he's one of your children, Lord, just let him see the evidence and the fruit of the Holy Spirit, see victory. If he's not, Lord, would you make that clear and plain as well? We pray in Christ's name. Would you stand?